If you guys are into shooting the copper bullets, man, I got a great deal for you. We have partnered with Barnes Bullets. They are world famous, known for that Vore TX rifle, the deadliest, most accurate hunting loads on the planet. I like this company, guys, because I have a personal connection to these guys. On uh, Down in central Utah, uh, my dad's got this ranch, and uh, on the way to the ranch, you drive past this uh, Barnes Bullets factory, and it's, it's a really cool building just kind of out in the middle of nowhere. So I know them well. These all-copper bullets provide destructive power, double diameter expansion, maximum weight retention, and devastating energy transfer, all with excellent accuracy. It's a great choice for Western big game game hunters and shooters everywhere. So check them out at BarnesBullets.com and let me know what you guys think. I appreciate it. You've heard my Silencer Central ads, I'm sure. And I don't know if you have reached out and contacted them yet. If you're interested in a silencer, though, man, this is the way to go. Silencer Central from the start to finish, because it's quite the process. If you've never gotten a suppressor for one of your rifles, you've got to go through and do the ATF paperwork and the background checks and all that kind of stuff. But the cool part is, is Silencer Central takes care of it all. It's a several-month process, and so what's cool about it is if you don't want to drop all that money right at the top uh, end of this whole process, you can just get a hold of them, and you can do like a payment plan while they're taking care of all the paperwork on the back end. I have the Banish 30, uh, and this thing is awesome. I've never used one of these before, so I'm like learning as as I go along, but what I what I was getting at is from start to finish, Silencer Central has been some of the most amazing people I've ever worked with through the process. They treated me like I was family, and I really appreciated it. You guys should check them out, and you can call them at 866-891-4494 or check it out at silencercentral.com. It will be worth your time, I promise. All right, guys, I got a good one this week. Get ready, buckle up, and listen in. Here we go. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here... We provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. Gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the Western Huntsman Podcast. This is Jim Huntsman, your host, coming at you from the Broken Tine Studio and brought to you by Eastman's Hunting Journals. Glad you guys are tuning in, and we are uh, really glad to be here. Uh, it has been a, a an interesting week so far, and it's only Monday, so it looks like we uh, we might get an early winter up here in um, North Idaho, Western Montana. <laughs> and so we uh, we've been dealing with that, and uh, my guest this week had to deal with some some issues around uh, the the storm coming in. So, anyways, uh, I've got somebody I'm, I've been following on Instagram for a long time, and it's always been, you know, just one uh, one of those super entertaining, you know, Instagram pages or whatever that uh, has 
between photography and hunting in the outdoors and, and different things that he does, um, you know, it's like anybody I say that wants to come on this show, the, the, the requirement is only, you know, uh, you're an interesting person that I'd love to have a conversation with. And so I'm just meeting him for the first time. And his name is John Law. And his Instagram handle is at the last Wyomingite, which I love. And uh, glad you glad you're here, man. I appreciate you coming on the show and welcome. Hey, thanks, Jim. Um, I really appreciate having the chance to come on. I've been a longtime fan of your show, and I honestly, I feel like I know you, and I've been looking forward to this opportunity to sit down and visit for a long time. Awesome, man. That, I love hearing that kind of stuff. It's it's really cool. It's I, That's what I like. You know, as I, I talk a lot of, uh, I have a lot of negative things to say about social media, but, but there are a lot of positive things, and it, one of them is, like, without social media, I would never meet cool dudes like you. And, and, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a good way to stay connected and, and build new connections and friendships. If you know, you, you go about it right. And, um, that's, that's, you know, again, one of the positive things that comes out of it. So yeah, man, um, boy, go ahead. Well, I just, I was going to say, I couldn't agree more, Jim, that, uh, before I started my Instagram page, I wasn't really on social media and I have just been overwhelmed by uh, the number of new friends that I've made and how much information I've learned uh, just by being engaged through that platform. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, for sure. I, it's, it's been like, I have no idea what I'm doing with the Instagram thing because it, and it's, it's always funny. People are like, I'll, I'll reach out to somebody and yeah, you know, some big name person. I'll be like, "Hey, you want to come on my podcast?" and and they'll be like, "Ah, you don't have enough Instagram followers." <laughs> and I'm like, "I don't even know what that means." But <laughs> but it it does not reflect the audience size. So uh, whatever, Jerry. No. <laughs> but, yeah. What do you do? <laughs> so uh, I didn't lose you, did I? No, I'm still I'm still okay. here. I got to keep checking because that that uh, that storm's still brewing pretty bad out there so if i lose phone service and, and if if for some reason just between you and i if if this call drops uh it's the storm's fault i promise i didn't just hang up on you but i'll uh, give it a minute and i'll call you back um sure. i'm i'm curious about the your instagram handle itself the last wyomingite what what do you mean by that oh boy that's that's a really good question um it's actually one that comes up from time to time i think uh, unfortunately, some people probably take it the wrong way in uh, thinking that I may be out to outlast everyone in the state or something. <laughs> and, uh, that's not it at all. Uh, when, I, when I came up with that, I, I thought, well, one, it's catchy, um, that it's recognizable. Mm-hmm. And, and two, that I, I felt like through uh, my childhood and adult life, I've seen so many wild places become less wild over time. Mm. And I, I have feared that some of the things I'm seeing and uh, sharing on Instagram uh, might be the last chance for, for some people to see. And uh, maybe that's not the case. And I can think of lots of uh, positive examples of uh, places where Wyoming's wild places are improving. But uh, it's just a reminder of what of what we have to lose, and of sort of a lifestyle uh, of time, past times. Yeah, I actually that's interesting. You say it like that because I've always 
You know, we we lived in my wife and I. We we've lived in North Idaho for twenty some odd years. Uh, before that, I I grew up in Utah, uh, and and kind of sandwiched in between there. I was I was stationed out out in North Carolina with the with the military, right? And so, but it's it's Utah and and North Idaho. The differences and the changes that have taken place, and I, I still feel like I'm I'm like I'm about to turn uh, forty three. I'm about to turn 43 in like a week, week and a half. And so I, I still, you know, which by the way, when I was a kid, 43 was like old as all get out, man. But I, I feel like a young man still, you know what I mean? And so this, the changes that have rapidly taken place in, in both Utah and, and like my area of North Idaho, uh, you know, like Coeur d'Alene, Idaho is nothing like it was. 15 years ago. I mean, even seven, eight, nine years ago, the, the vast changes, the, the development, the land that was huntable that no longer is, um, is mind blowing. And, and now, now I'm in Western Montana. I feel like I'm in an area of, of Montana where like there's, because it's, it's just kind of off the beaten path. There's not a lot of growth taking place. But I saw Utah go from what it was when I was a kid to now it's just like if you drive through Utah from Ogden through Spanish Fork, I mean, it's just continuous developed areas, you know, uh, there's no breaks. Now, Wyoming is an interesting case because Wyoming is the least populated of the lower 48. And I don't know what growth has been like. I know Sheridan has has blown up. I know uh, I know Cody has blown up. Uh, and I'm sure Cheyenne, I, I, I've driven through Cheyenne many times in my life and I, I don't really spend any, I've never really spent much time. Where are you at? Uh, I'm in Lander, kind of right in the middle of the state oh, at yeah. the foothill of the winds. Um, Heck yeah, it, man. the population of Wyoming is interesting because it has hardly grown in my lifetime. And if anything, it's maybe shrunk a little bit, yeah. uh, but what is happening here and that's happening everywhere is urbanization right mm-hmm. the uh the little towns the 50, the 50 person towns on the highways are are shrinking away and towns like lander and powell and cody are continuing to grow and yeah. so it's, it's kind of a shift in population and what i've seen around lander just since i've been here is uh, the growth of subdivisions right mm-hmm. um these blocks that that were uh, family farms and ranches that have now been subdivided into five acre plots. And so at the very least, the corridor to a lot of the wild places we hunt around here are lined with houses that weren't there 15 years ago. And that's interesting. Yeah. And Pinedale's like that too. Uh, My wife and I almost moved to Pinedale. This was years ago. I was going to buy this company in Pinedale. Uh, And, we were we were looking and and that was the process back gosh what year was this like 2008 2009ish and it was right when the market crashed and that's actually what stopped me from buying this company um the uh, the 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 town of pinedale you know i i've been going there for a long time uh, but it had changed a lot when we were looking there and and i was worried about where they were uh, building and I'm not an expert on Pinedale, but I, I was worried about some of the subdivisions they were building. It seemed like the, it was really cutting off some muley corridor uh, migration patterns uh, b- b- because of just the way the landscape is there. And, and I could be totally off base, but um, that was just the 
you know, something that a guy that knows just enough to be dangerous about wildlife habitat and, and, and biology and things like that, that it, it was a bit concerning, but it seems to not be a huge problem so far. Uh, in in that neck of the woods, but I I don't again I don't know I don't I don't keep up with with that kind of stuff uh, in that detail. So did, you grew up in Wyoming. I did. I've uh, I've lived in Wyoming my whole life now. Um, and did you grow up in Lander, or, or how'd you grow up? No, I. Well, I, I guess to give you the sort of the elevator version, I, I was born in southeast Wyoming. Uh, my folks are from western Nebraska, and uh, are big bird hunters. And they uh, had me in south, southeast Wyoming and moved to Thermopolis shortly thereafter. I went to school and graduated high school in Thermopolis. Hey, and so I, I got to cut in there. I got a speeding ticket in Thermopolis one time. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's my uh, that's my history with it. I, I got pulled over <laughs> right out of town. <laughs> and then I followed the cop into town and he let me pay the fine right there. So I didn't have to come back for court. Well, that's convenient. <laughs> Anyways, so you went to school in Thermopolis, huh? Yeah, I did. Uh, my folks had a little uh, mom and pop motel right on Main Street. And actually, uh, in the 90s, when I was going to high school, the Eastmans uh, were publishing their magazine right across the street from me. Oh, nice. And so, yeah, they've kind of been uh, role models. And I, as far as I'm concerned, sort of the pinnacle of, of Western big game hunting. And yeah. so it's really it's really been cool to see how much they've grown in that time. Yeah, from the it, journal to uh, I was on their website the other day, and boy, they're doing all sorts of cool stuff. They I, are, not man. The videos. Uh, yeah. Holy cow! The hunting right? content. The you know you got Tag Hub. You got the Mule Deer course now, and and they've got you know this family of podcasts, which this podcast is part of, which was was super cool for me i didn't know i've i've been i've been subscribing to eastman's hunting magazine for i don't know how long since i was a teenager you know and i i I started this hunting podcast unknowingly i did not know that eastman's did podcasts and so anyway kind of cool kind of cool to see the transformation of of, uh, all of that yeah really but yeah anyway i uh Went to school in Thermopolis and uh, went to college in Powell. Met my wife there, and then uh, she and I went to finish school in Laramie at the University of Wyoming. Good folks, and uh, got married shortly after college. And ever since then, it's been John and Kate versus the world, and uh, that's sort of my first act. Uh, after college, I got a job as a business manager at, at a school district. Uh, on the reservation right outside of Lander here. Oh, okay. and And it was a really good job, and I was really good at it, Jim, but I hated it. From, from the first day I, I started work there uh, to the last day, I had in my mind that I need to do something else with my life, that sitting in an office on the nice days and on the cold days uh, just wasn't for me. Was that the main thing that you didn't like about it? Was kind of being office bound, or what? What other things made it made it feel like not a fit for you? Yeah, uh, that's the, that's the biggest one. Is just the conformity of the schedule, um, hmm. the demand of the type of work, the accounting. Um, 
I, I would leave the office on Friday with everything in my mind from the, the week that I just had. And I would spend the whole weekend worrying about what I was going to have to do on Monday. And so I was having a hard time staying connected to the outdoors. And I know some people can do it, but for me, uh, being an outdoorsman is pretty much an everyday thing. Yeah. And yeah. over the years, I've come to learn that that's not just a, a sort of a selfish thing. That That's a, an important part of maintaining my mental health is being able to get outside every day and uh, enjoy nature and take the dog for a walk and Mm-hmm. So, I so see, I see you got a pretty handsome pup right now. That that black lab. Yeah, he's really doing good, man. He's actually laying right here beside me. Is he? I, yeah, I took I took him out this afternoon uh, just to make sure that he was uh, done for the day when we got on the phone. And yeah, so if you hear snoring, it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> it's the puppy. Uh, I think that's that's funny. You say that. I have I have this old timer. He's an old. He's a yellow lab. He is 12 and a half years old, uh, uh, and and I, I, I have a hard time talking about it. He's, he's on his last limb, man, and uh, it's, it's kind of tearing me apart. But uh, this old-timer, he used to come in the studio and record with me, but he snores so loud. I, I was editing the podcast, and I can hear him snoring in the background. So I, I had to kind of kick him out during recording times. Oh, I, I felt terrible. I had... <laughs> My first adult dog was a yellow lab I lost about a year ago. And man, I, when I lost him, I wasn't sure if I even ever wanted to have a dog again. I know but, that's uh, the thing with him, man. I, I have, y- you have to remember when you're going through the bad time with the end of the end of life with your dog, you know, you have to remember the, the 10, 12, 15, whatever years you had that were good with them because it is rough. It is, it, it losing your dog is rough. And I know a lot of people that are going through it right now. Um, you know, my, my buddy Mike over at Cut Right Mobile, I know he's, he's been going through that. And, uh, my buddy Dirk Durham, he just went through that not long ago. And, and I, I'm, I'm going to be right behind him here with Trev. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to be a rough day. I can tell you that much. Yeah. Well, I, I feel for you and hang in there as it happens. I, it's, it's good and bad how life goes on and it's sort of not a thing we, we really talk about, but yeah, yeah, for sure. So for those of you out there listening that uh, have gone through that recently or about to go through it with your dog, man, I just, I, there, there's no words that can make that feel better other than it just sucks. It, it just sucks. And, and the only thing that heals it is time. And like I, you can go out and replace the dog, uh, but that just makes you, you, you feel good about the, the new dog. It doesn't make you forget the old dog. You know, it's, it's like, it just sucks yeah. losing your dog. So, well, you know, I will say, and then we can get back on topic. Yeah. It, uh, I, as I was losing my dog, I was, I, I thought about getting another puppy and that's what the vet recommended, you know? So old school vets is yeah. Get the new one before you lose the old one. That's and what I we thought, did. I thought that would be hard on on old Jack. And when I got the puppy, after months of grieving, you know, mm-hmm. it and played with the puppy, I realized Jack would have loved this dog. That it wouldn't have been a problem at all to have two dogs in the house. No, I and well, I, I that's probably that. yeah, that's probably a good way to deal with the transition. Is 
Yeah, yeah. I think you nailed it, John. Be, the the other aspect of that. So so I've got Trevor. He's he's my twelve and a half year old. Uh, but two years ago we got we got a puppy named Wyatt. Uh, we named him Wyatt. He's a golden retriever. And uh, what what I noticed was Trevor about the time we got this pup. You know, he was really slowing down. He wasn't wanting, like, I, I, I can't take him hunting anymore. He's, he's got too much arthritis. He's too slow and wears out. You know, uh, but he was really slowing down. Well, I, we got this puppy. And if it weren't for this puppy, again, his name is Wyatt, I feel like Trevor would be gone by now. But it, it sparked some extra life into yeah. him. And all of a sudden, he was playing again. And, you know, it, it was typical. He was annoyed. There was a puppy around, and he wasn't, you know, the only child anymore kind of thing. <laughs> you know, but it it wasn't um, – that, that only lasted for, like, the first week. And after that, all of a sudden, he fell in love with this puppy as well and was out playing with him. And they do, they do the tug war thing, and the pup just follows him around everywhere he goes and and uh, uh you know it, it did i feel like it added some life to my older dog uh and you know but now he's 12 and a half and that's old for a big dog like trevor um and and he's just he's you know i i feel like i i know for sure this is his last winter if he, mm-hmm. if he makes it through so anyway sad stuff <laughs> you're gonna get me on a soapbox talking about my old man dude <laughs> <laughs> So I want to know a little bit about your attachment to the outdoors. You you talked about, you know, you were having a hard time as a business manager for the school district, you know, getting outside and, and enjoying the outdoors because um, it sounds like you're you're a little bit like me where you, you, you might obsess over work stuff when you're not at work. Um, what what is how did you grow up in terms of the outdoors? Did, did you grow up hunting? Did you did you grow up? Uh, doing photography like you do now and, and stuff like that. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, I grew up a bird hunter. Uh, my dad and uncles and grandpa are all big pheasant hunters. And uh, so I, we actually didn't have a dog for a period of my childhood, and I felt like I was the bird dog at times. <laughs> um, but lots of bird hunting trips, lots of fishing trips. Uh, some of my earliest pictures are out in the out in the outdoors uh, having my diaper changed on the hood of the truck and nice stringers of fish and i've I've been at it my whole life um as when i was sort of a middle school age kid i had a big dog named orca that was part of kita and i would go hiking pretty much every day with that dog i had we lived out in the country. We had a big ravine that to a 12 year old was endless, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I grew up outside, uh, looked for arrowheads and it just following the curiosities of nature, kind of like I do now. Um, I think for people that follow my page or look at my page, uh, a lot of what I post about is the things that are on the way to the thing that I'm doing. You know, the, the little fascinations that, I didn't go out looking for, but that became the most interesting part of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I'm, I'm going through your Instagram right now. Uh, just just uh, not to sidetrack us, but where'd you take that grizzly bear picture? You know what? That's up on union pass above Dubois. God, he's um, huge man. Or maybe it's just the, the yeah. angle or something. No, he's big. <laughs> it, huh. That was, uh, that was just out the car window. Um, 
but it gives me a chill every time I see a grizzly bear. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was, at, uh, you know, at least a hundred yards away off the side of the road. Um, I stopped, took the picture and kept going without even really causing a gawker block or anything. Oh, um, yeah. Jeez. Yeah. I just, I, I don't want to run into something like that when I'm hunting. <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm always happy to see those from inside the pickup. Yeah, yeah, that's a good place to see them, man. So hunting wise, did you did you did you kind of mold into like big game hunting? What what happened with that? Yeah, so I didn't do that at all growing up. Um, my dad had done it in his youth and kind of got out of it before I was hunting age. And I think for some reason he didn't want to pass that along to me. I, which is fine, you know. There are uh, people that are have hunted and then become non-hunters because of it, just because they don't like to take life. Um, yeah. yep. But I, I got about 30 years old and I just, I, everybody around me was doing it. Right. And so I'm one of those adult onset big game hunters. I uh, took it up on my own as a solo hunter and I've been successful with antelope and deer and uh, not at all with elk. <laughs> that's not that's a pretty common story man don't feel bad <laughs> uh, dang elk anyway um let me go back to your your instagram here and then an, another another big topic for me by the way what what'd you think of the antelope meat i, I love it do you it, yeah pretty good i i have i have a i have a memory of of having antelope meat some odd years ago and it was terrible and, and i just don't know i don't know if it was the way it was cooked or the way the the meat was handled after the kill or, or what happened there but uh, i didn't like it and i haven't i haven't hunted one since uh i i hear people that say that and it, it could be your taste um it can be tough you know it's their muscles are so dense um from all that running mm, yeah that, that makes uh, sense it can be tough but I, I think like with any game, uh, if you process it quickly and correctly and then prepare each cut correctly, it can be really, really good. Uh, one of my favorite things is an antelope rump roast really? cooked all day with vegetables and onions. And oh, yeah. Heck, yeah. Cool, man. I, I'm uh, now that I live in Montana, I might I might. Uh chase some pronghorn antelope this this coming year but um yeah i just have you know the the other issue with it is they're so far away from where I live. we don't have antelope up here we, we just don't we don't have them in this part of montana or north idaho uh so it's a hike to get to where they live and idaho was a draw tag for them which is actually pretty easy to i think everybody draws for it but i i just was like man after i tasted that antelope i don't know over a decade ago <laughs> I am not driving nine hours to Southern Idaho to chase an, uh, chase an antelope. <laughs> but I, I'll probably change You that. know, I'll, I guess I'll just say it. I sort of feel the same way about mule deer. That uh, Yeah, a lot of people I, say boy, that. I've had some mule deer that was just, uh, almost couldn't choke it down. And so it's not my first preference to hunt. Well, mule deer are, the, you know, I, I what I have found is and and what happened is years ago before he passed away i had dr valerius geist on the show and this is a guy that you know made a career out of studying this kind of stuff uh and he was a he was pretty nutty about mule deer but mule deer is is super dependent on a couple of things a time of year and b um elevations that you kill them at and what they're eating 
like if if you're if you're hunting and and again there every time i'm i like have an opinion on the show i'm gonna get some people that totally disagree with what i say and i expect that so if you guys are listening and you think i'm full of crap send me an email jim at the western huntsman.com i'm happy to talk about it but here's what i here's what i have found because I've, I've killed a lot of mule deer the lower country sagebrush type mule deer tastes like crap I mean, let's just be um, honest. They they just taste like crap. It's it's uh, it's pretty sagey tasting. Uh, it 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 like for some reason has this. Um, I I hate I hate the term gamey because I I think that's a really broad term used by people that don't really understand wild game meat. Uh, but it's it's very sagey, almost, I guess. Almost astringent. Yeah. Right? Almost, like, yeah. Kind of, oh, almost like, like a. Like a little bit of a creosote. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Creosote, and, and it's like, especially you could really tell on that type of deer when you cook it in the house, and and the smell is like unpleasant. You know, where you throw elk burger or um, you know beef or something on on a on a pan or something in the house, and, and it's good yeah, yeah, and it's really good. But there there is something unpleasant now. When you when you contrast that with like a high country mule deer that are eating eating these, um, you know the the leaves of foliage that that are up higher that have a, um, a, a I'm not a scientist so bear with me, but it has something to do with photosynthesis and the shorter term of photosynthesis within the vegetation produces like higher sugar amounts in shorter amount of times or something like that. I can't, I'd have to go back and listen to this episode. Yeah. Uh, oh, how interesting. And and so what happens is that vegetation creates mule or the the, the venison um it, it, there's no difference between it and like a whitetail because whitetail always tastes good. It's right. really tough to beat a whitetail. So I I guess what I'm saying is I don't know was it last year or the year before I got a I got a mule deer because I've been hunting mainly whitetail but I did go up my cousin Andrew and we both tagged down on some mule deer. Man, it was a great tasting buck. It was way up there, high country kind of, kind of, uh, you know, uh, what I'm what I'm describing here. Um, and I took really good care of the meat. You have to re- you have to get the hide off immediately on a mule deer. At where with a whitetail, and it could be that I usually shoot whitetail around Thanksgiving, so it's usually pretty cold. Uh, but shoot, man, I don't. I, I'm not in a rush to get the hide off. Where, where with a mule deer, you really got to get that hide off. And if you shoot them up in the high country, um, they just tend to taste a lot better than those lower country muleys, uh, like that, like a Utah muley deer. Um, from again, this is my experience with it, so it's my opinion. But they just do not taste as good as a high country mule deer. Utah or Idaho, or it doesn't matter where. I'm, I, I've never killed a deer in in Wyoming, so I can't speak to it. But um, I anyway. Hope, hopefully, that kind of made sense. That does. That's very interesting. Yeah, it, it, that's the crazy thing with hunting, man. I, that, that's what I love about hunting is there's all these different concepts that we could break down and you know argue and debate and talk about, and and you just the the thing is is I've never you can't unquestionably prove one of these theories one way or the other. You know what I mean? It's hard to do, but it's always yeah. fun to talk well, about. A lot of times in the hunting world, it's it's a story based on an anecdote, someone's experience that it might be a hundred percent true. And so that's, they, they form knowledge from that experience that they carry with them for the rest of their lives, but there's no way to prove it without, 
without the scientific method of testing what they've experienced. Yeah, it, yeah, it, good point. It's an antidote. And so we all have these anecdotes that are probably true, but unproven. And that's what mine is. And I've always had the opinion, too, like a, a late August through mid-October mule deer doesn't taste anywhere near as good as a late October through early November mule deer. And and again, that's just an anecdotal thing that I have from my experience. I, I don't know if that's like, you know, there's consistency with that with, with other hunters. It's just it's just what I've found. And so, you know. Now, that said, I have I did kill a really skanky uh, whitetail one time, and it did not taste very good at all. Uh, and that was around my birthday, which is November 10th. And, uh, he was all sorts of rutted up, super smelly. He was a big buck, uh, probably, I don't know, four and a half, five and a half year old buck. And, uh, he just did not taste that good, man. I, I don't know why or what happened, but it tasted like he was just full of, you know, hormones or something. Hormones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's so. I had wondered with the mule deer too, but the, the timing uh, where you get the mule deer uh, pretty far before the rut that doesn't really. Yeah, uh, yeah. In most cases, we have a late we have a late we have a November mule deer hunt here uh, that goes from like the first through the fourteenth. Um, and and I'm you know the problem is is I, I we're we're fixing to get snow here in the next couple of days, so I, I I don't know if I'm going to be able to access the areas where they're at, but I'm I'm hoping I can. I didn't lose you, did I? No, nope, I'm still here. Sorry. Nope, you're good. You're good, man. Um, so okay, let, let's let's shift gears here because uh, again, I'm going back to your Instagram, which, by the way, folks, is at the last Wyomingite. I know we talked about it, but uh, check it out. Uh, you have in your kind of description that you have, everybody has on these these Instagram pages, uh, Wyoming outdoorsman, modern homesteader, entrepreneur. Let's move to the modern homesteader. Tell me a little, like, how do you define homesteading? And in your mind, what is modern homesteading? Okay. Well, I guess in my mind, when I say homesteading, that's my wife and I's uh, personal property. Our sort of our nest egg in our home mm-hmm. um, and our efforts to uh, have a house, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess... When I say modern homesteading, I'm thinking about uh, things, doing things that are sustainable, um, being as self-sufficient as possible, uh, but also uh, being a part of a community that's uh, trying to do the same types of homesteading things. I don't, I don't have my own chickens, but I can buy local eggs. Um, yeah. I, I, I guess a, a core to my beliefs is – Whenever there's a task, I ask myself, uh, what, what's the best way to do this? And sometimes you find that the answer is with a 5,000-year-old tool, and sometimes it feels like the best way to do it hasn't been invented yet. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm always out to answer that question, and uh, we do as many little things as we can to, to be uh, – to live efficient lives and to know where our food came from and what's in it. And yeah, with any thing that I guess you would label as homesteading, the question is, can we sustain this? Is it uh, cheaper than the alternative? And is it better than the alternative? Mm-hmm. And do we like doing it? Um, 
Yeah. So we keep a big garden. Um, I've got a little a little property I'm developing now where I've we've got a, a second garden going and all sorts of stuff going on that I would kind of roll both into the auspice of homesteading and of entrepreneurship. Uh, those things are are pretty closely related. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I love that. I love the concept. I, th- you know, John, I I think homesteading. To, to define a homesteader, because everybody has a different definition as to what it is. Homesteading is a mindset, and, and it's it's a lot of what you talked about. Yeah. Sustainability. Our self-reliance has a lot to do with it. Like, I consider the fact that I'm a hunter, and, and we don't buy very much meat through the year. Well, depending on how good of a year I had. <laughs> um, but we don't buy a lot of store-bought meat. Uh, we, we procure that through hunting. Uh, we, we, we procure veggies through, through our garden, uh, and, and, you know, as well as some fruits and, and a lot of the, um, you know, herbs and spices and things like that. My, my wife grows, she's like the expert with gardening. I, I'm super dumb with it, but, um, you know, and we, we do have chickens and we, but we, like some people wouldn't call us a homesteader because we're not going to get a cow. I, I don't, I, I've done that and, and I don't want to do it again because once you get a, once you get a cow to, uh, to milking, man, you have to do it two, three times a day. And if yeah. you, if you want to, you know, take a vacation and escape the snow and, you know, go to, go to Arizona or something for a week. Uh, you're not going to get milk off that cow unless you can count on somebody to come and milk that a few times a day. And that gets costly. So instead we source that we trade, uh, cause we have 16 chickens. We trade eggs for, um, milk from one of our neighbors who does have a cow. And from that, my wife gets us all the milk that we need and she makes butter and cheeses and, uh, sour creams. I mean, she does all sorts of stuff with this milk. And and the the idea is we are very self-reliant because if things like were to go south, for example, with supply chains, uh, we're not going to miss out on that kind of stuff because we have it. We know how to procure it. We know how to how to get it. And that, that self-reliance is, is kind of part of the homesteading mindset. And I think that that's what that's what being a homesteader is, because there's there's like extremists out there that act like in order to be a true homesteader, you have to live off grid. And, you know, you have to have this many animals and livestock this and livestock that and, uh, you know, honeybees and all this different stuff. Hey, look, if, if, if that's your Boy, thing, I, that's awesome. That's great. That's great. That's great. But Boy, I just... Let me tell you about the show's newest sponsor, Juniper Mountain Coffee. You can check them out at junipermountaintradingpost.com. And check out everything that they sell. I really like what they say on their website. And guys, if you are a coffee connoisseur like me, this here American company that's not run by a bunch of wokesters might be worth checking out for you. What they say is, we roast coffee for those loyal to a lost way of life. Those that never back down in the face of adversity. The ones that keep their word, treat people with respect, and still believe in the importance of hard work. We offer some of the best coffee in the world and look forward to earning a spot in your cup. And they have definitely earned a spot in my cup. Whether you like light roast, dark roast, ground already, or not ground, you just want to order it fresh. And they even have those little pod things for those of you that just make one cup at a time. I drink too much coffee for that, so I don't do that. And they also have a cold brew. But it's a great company, great story. Uh, You guys are going to dig these guys. Check them out at junipermountaintradingpost.com. Let them know the Western Huntsman sent you. 
This is that time of year when it's really time to turn up the heat on your scouting. We're going through summer. Season's going to be here before you know it. And I don't care if you're going after mule deer, whitetail, the mighty whoppity, whatever it is. Scouting is imperative and it makes it much easier when you use trail cameras where they are allowed. And uh, let me tell you something. I, I like trail cameras that are easy to use, functional, and have good quality pictures. That brings us to SpyPoint. SpyPoint trail cameras. You can check them out at spypoint.com. And it doesn't matter if you're looking to do one of the cell cams, like the Flex X or the Flex G36 or the LM2. They have some great deals on their website. Like right now, if you check them out, they've got some clearance cameras going on on the cell cams. You can also get a cell link that attaches to any regular cell camera and will uh, transmit pictures right to your phone. The other trail cameras, if you're way out in the backcountry and don't have phone service out there, the Force Pro S and the Force Pro are my go-to cameras. I absolutely love them. If you guys saw the pictures from this last bear season, they were really high-quality pictures, and they were all done with that Force Pro camera. So check it out, guys, at spypoint.com, and let them know the Western Huntsman sent ya. It's almost not possible. You know, if you you really wanted to to do that and go uh, completely self-sufficient, I I mean, are you, are you going to grow and grind your own wheat? You know, um, there's, we're all in this together. And so I, I see the ads on TV from the Wyoming department of Homeland security fairly often. They say that everybody in Wyoming should have on stock uh, two weeks of supplies in case something were to happen. And that doesn't sound like very much, but it's, it's not, but I would guess that most people aren't there. You know, I, after going through COVID, I know that most people aren't there. No, At the very least, we keep a a nice, well-stocked pantry and use it. You know, that's, it's basically our grocery store. And it just eliminates that uh, worry and that thought that I someone I could be someone else's problem if if there were problems. Yeah, so. that's a good mindset. You don't want to be somebody else's problem. I, I like that. I like that mindset. And I think I think you nailed it, man. Two two weeks is just not going to cut it because you will become somebody else's problem after after a week. I I, I don't know. Yeah. After going through COVID. You know, we we had we had some level of of like prepper. I, I I hate using the term prepper, but we had preparations for things if if things were going you know a little bit more long term or whatnot. And so we were okay. But think about like if it was worse than what COVID was. Uh, I recommend I recommend you should be able to feed your family with what you have within your house for ninety days at a minimum without going to a grocery store or ordering you know uber uber delivery food or what do, what do they call that there's some service yeah, uber eats yeah, yeah that one we don't we don't have Bird that yeah we don't have those either but i i guess i know what they are <laughs> i i travel to big cities sometimes for work and, yeah. and i can i can do that but you have to get like an app and stuff and so it's kind of a pain uh, but anyway, that the the point the point with that is that that's what like for for me I recommend a, a good ninety day stockpile of supplies that your family and that's that's going to include food and after COVID, by golly, have the toilet paper ready, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Just because uh, I I feel like there there could definitely be something 
Imagine if COVID was worse. Imagine if it was like, you know, if you got COVID, it was an absolute no, you know, questions asked death sentence. People would have been a lot more cautious about, you know, going outside and, and interacting with other people. And it would have been a much bigger deal. And supply chains would have added. There wouldn't have been any, you know, oh, you have a, uh, uh, what did they call that, John? The um, necessary job or, or uh Oh, what what did they call them? That phrase, I I just it's uh, so stupid. Whenever I forget, essential 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 employees. Yes, you would not have that if that was worse than COVID. You would not have essential employees still able to deliver groceries from the grocery store or uh, doing pickup orders at Walmart. You know, stuff like that. And so, you know, that's that, that I I think, and and you don't have to live on like property or land or, or anything to have this, but it, it, you you can find space in your own home to have like a 90 day supply. Um, what would yeah. say you on that? Yeah, I, I say exactly. Um, and that's far long before COVID, uh, sort of my mentality just, uh, in terms of, uh, personal finance has been to identify those things, you know, like paper products and cleaning products that you can get ahead on. Yeah. And then I, I stay ahead on all of those things. Yeah. Um, it's a wise policy. It's a wise policy. Indeed. Yeah, paper products, uh, first aid supplies. People don't think about that kind of stuff. First aid supplies, um, you know, 90 days worth of different various batteries to light your home if power were out uh, and heat your home, uh, things like that. Everybody, you know, they, they like these um, cosmetic fireplace areas where it's like a natural gas thing. But if, if supply chains were to go, to go down and that natural gas uh, ran out, what, how are you going to heat that house? You know, if, if your furnace and or electric, you know. Yeah. And so anyway, th- those are things I, I don't know. I could do, a, I, I'd love to do a whole podcast on that, on that topic at some point. But what, what did you mean by the entrepreneur side tying into the homesteading stuff? Well, uh, just that uh, in terms of it being a, a personal effort of mine, uh, one of the things I do that I guess I would call homesteading right now is uh, I have a growing tomato garden a container tomato garden and i uh, just last week uh, after ripening tomatoes for the last several weeks made 32 pints of marinara sauce oh really that um it's, it's my own proprietary recipe jim and i'm telling you it is delicious how does a guy so, up in montana get a hold of some of that well, I, I bet we. I bet I could. I bet I could ship you some. Well, I, and I, I'm not saying for free, unless you want to sponsor the show. That'd be a lot of marinara sauce. No, I'm kidding. Well, <laughs> that's no. where I'm going with this. Is that it started as sort of a personal project of just uh, growing tomatoes as a hobby and as a part of the garden, mm-hmm. and I've worked on uh, increasing the size of that uh, space every year. I add. I started with two containers, and for years I've been adding uh, two containers, four plants every year. Uh, so this year I made 32 pints of sauce, and that sauce is the base for I, – I couldn't even list all of the meals that I make where that's the key ingredient, you know, uh, goulash or chili or stuffed peppers or think of all the things uh, that take a red sauce. Yeah. Spaghetti, yeah. And it's ready to go on the shelf, and it's a homemade product of all my ingredients, all my herbs and spices, 
And so I've got this uh, little lot that I'm developing, and I'm still in the laying the groundwork stage of it up there. But uh, someday I picture a tomato farm. And uh, with the unpredictability of Wyoming summers, I uh, have worked to grow more and more tomatoes hydroponically. And it's cool, Jim. I, I'm growing heirloom tomatoes year-round really? that are delicious. In like a greenhouse? Is that because that hydroponically, whatever you, word you said there is way out of my vocabulary, brother. Yeah, well, and, and what I'm doing is sort of blended hydropon hydroponics as just uh, growing a plant just in water and oh, with fertilizer, okay. right? I've heard of this. Okay, yes, yes. And so I tried it with tomatoes last winter, and they're doing great. Um, and I've been experimenting with it. You can clone a tomato plant, get it to grow a, a bloom, and cut that bloom off and put it in water and start growing it right beside its parent plant. Um, it's It's been a fascinating study for me, just sort of on a personal level. But someday it'll be it'll be a business. I, I'd really like to think yeah. that I'm just, you know, within a couple of years, um, scale, I keep scaling it up and scaling it up, and that's um, fantastic. So that's man. what I do when I say my homesteading and my entrepreneurial efforts are kind of all uh, all tied together. You know, I, anybody that's listened to my show knows that I have this thing where I, I I'm a huge fan of somebody starting something as a dream and, and building it into their livelihood. And, and I, I get really excited about it. In fact, I'm, I'm very passionate about entrepreneurship and, and growing, growing an idea from, from just that, an idea into something tangible, like, like this marinara business. What do you do? Do you, do you like can it or jar it? Uh, and, and it's ready to go. Yeah. And, and yeah. How, so how I, do you sell it? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I, I, I'm actually, I, this is the first year where I've had enough that I maybe could sell a little bit of it. Um, but it's a, it's a process. Uh, tomatoes start ripening, you know, late July. Mm -hmm. And so I, I eat as many as I can, but as they start to ripen, I start to refrigerate them and keep them cool. And as soon as I have, I pretty much, we get to a point in mid-October where that's about it. I've still got a few tomatoes on the counter, but I, I draw the line and say, this is the batch. And then they all have to be blanched. And from there, they go into a stock pot and I add all the spices and onions and garlic and everything that goes in it. And uh, with a big, with a big pot, I think it cooked for a, about I cooked for about six hours before I decided it was done. And for anybody that's made spaghetti sauce or marinara, when it's done, it turns into magma. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it, it is dangerous. It will eject, it ejects. It's almost like a uh, Indian paint pot in Yellowstone, you know? Wow. And that, that's when it's done. And from there, it's into uh, it's yeah, shelving jars, you know, pint-sized jars. I do a few different sizes for different meals. And then uh, 32 pints took uh, four, uh, was four batches in the water bather. Huh. And everything, once you water bath it and it seals 
and cooks that extra little bit. It's pasteurized and it's shelf stable for, I've used it out to about a year, you know, about, about the time I'm ready to make sauce, I'm running out of sauce and I've never had any go bad. Oh, good. Good for you, man. That's fantastic. Now, now, Hey, what, uh, what was your pup's name again? Pike. Pike. So you could do those, you could do a marinara ad where it's Pike trying to sell your recipe like that bean commercial. <laughs> All right. Yeah. That, that, that dog's trying to sell his, <laughs> sell his secret recipe or whatever. Uh, are you going to, are you going to call it like the last Wyoming marinara sauce kind of thing or. Yeah. Something like that. I like it. Something like that. And like I said, I've got a bunch of irons in the fire and, um, that's Hopefully, beautiful. most of them will work under this sort of this auspice of the last Wyomingite. Yeah, um, just kind of keep it all that 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 brand and that you know that image and and the the idea of there's something really authentic about something uh, a product coming from Wyoming for some reason. I that you know when you drive into Wyoming, you know they they've got uh, there's always that sign that says like "Welcome to Wyoming, Forever West," and it's got the guy on the buck and bronc with the mountains in the background. You know, there, there's something really nostalgic yeah. about that, and and I feel like you could build uh, a hell of a brand with something like that, and and I love it, man. This is beautiful stuff. I I love the idea of doing what you're doing and and creating it into and and or I'm sorry, turning it into some kind of livelihood for you. I think that's fantastic. I I appreciate that you're receptive to it. Um, Oh, Part of doing what I've doing is, been doing the last few years is uh, is hard for people to understand. You know, I, I quit my job and I flipped my economic model to where I, I've had this notion that um, instead of trying to go out and have a job where you make $100,000, maybe you can do 10 things that make $10,000 or, you know, one mm-hmm. something that's something that saves you $10,000 a year is the same as making $10,000 a year. And so I live a kind of an austere life and I count towards my uh, economic contribution, uh, all of the costs that I don't have by having a career like that. You know, I don't have to, to buy suits and we, we save so much just in food and groceries by having someone home to take care of the homestead uh, on a daily basis. Oh, absolutely. Do you, um, so do you, do you not have a day job now? I, I don't right now. Um, that's fantastic. Well, I, I, I've done be, being able to not have a day job has caused me to have to do some harder, uh, part time jobs. And I've got a little, uh, wood shop that generates some income. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And you, you sell custom prints with your photography stuff, right? Well, yeah, I try to. Uh, they're definitely available. If anybody uh, wants to check out that page and see something they like, they like, I can, I can always do a print. Um, that hasn't taken off like, like I would hoped it would. Honestly, uh, there are so many good photographers out there. Yeah, um, I feel like I, I, I could see that that being super, you know, competitive or or whatnot, but. You know, it's still, there's got to be some, I am not a photographer, man, but there's got to be, you know, I'm just looking through your Instagram here, something very satisfying about producing something like that. 
Uh, I, I, I'd like to, I would totally consider buying this, uh, print that you, I don't know if you have it as a print, but it's, it's a rooster, uh, a pheasant. Um, I, I, I too, like you grew up hunting pheasants and, um, you know, we did big game as well, but, uh, we were big time pheasant hunters and the country just kind of went to hell with, with, uh, the, where we'd hunt pheasants, you know, everything turned to, they, they got rid of the ditches and put in underground water lines. And so the habitat, um, yeah just kind of went away, you know, where we, we'd, we'd go out and be tagged out on, on our uh, two bird limit by 9am, man, you'd, you'd work for an entire Saturday and Sunday and maybe somebody in your group might see one, you know, and might've gotten one. And so I just kind of, I stopped. Um, I can, it, yeah, it sucks. It, it's kind of like that around here too. It's just, when I was a kid, uh, all the farmers would let you hunt, and now it's hard to know uh, who owns the farms. Even in a lot of cases, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, a lot of them are corporate owned. You know, they're they're these these firms that um, they're not even they're operated out of state. Uh, and I don't know, I I I'm, I don't know how I feel about this corporate farming thing, but well, that's, that's a good topic. Yeah, let's 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 talk about it, man. That, uh, um, but, but like, what is what is that? And 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 I I want to talk about this corporate farming thing, how it relates to life in Wyoming uh, specifically, because I know, I, and actually, I don't want to say I know, I I I have been made aware, and I, I have not confirmed that it is a big problem in Wyoming. There's not a lot of local farmers left. It's mostly these big corporate farms that buy up these big chunks of land, and and uh, turn them turning them in, or turn them into corporate farms. And how does that relate to like, you know, corner crossing issues, which is a big deal in Wyoming? Yeah. Well, I the first thing is that uh, when corporate farms come in, it means that a lot of local hunters lose their rights to hunt those lands. Mm-hmm. And I know they're there's a, a really big corporation that has bought uh, most of Albany County uh, down in Southeast Wyoming. And I've got friends down there that have hunted there for generations, had, had, re- had relationships with landowners and, and now they just can't, um, or at the very least uh, they have access to the road that got them to the public land. And now there's, there's a, a chain over the road. Mm. Um, the, the corner crossing uh, is it's a good subject because I think for a lot of native Wyoming's, it's something we took for granted until this 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 lawsuit came up. That what, what uh, do you it's mean? Something, what, what do you mean you guys took for granted? Well, it's something that in a lot of places, I guess, especially as a bird hunter, uh, out hunting uh, chuckers and huns in open country, mm-hmm. um, a lot of times uh, private land's not fenced. And yeah. so these corners that we're talking about, you're going from unfenced public land into private land, back into unfenced public land without any kind of demarcation of it. And so in the past, landowners, I don't think, would have ever thought anything of it to know that someone was passing through a corner. Uh, but when you have a corporation that's in charge and ranch hands that have very uh, specific orders about, you know, who's allowed where, and a lot of times, a part of it is that 
they're hiring outfitters to take people on hunts on their private land. And so they, they don't want you anywhere near their elk herds or their deer herds. So, um, so they're uh, j- just for well, clarification, so- uh, th- like they, so the corporate farms will basically, they, they do the farming operation and then they turn around, they like lease hunting privileges or whatever. Um, it, uh, sorry, I got, I got distracted there. Hunting uh, to, to kind of supplement their income kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but the case down by Elk Mountain that's gotten the national attention, it was yeah. actually it was a, a, a fenced section of land, and they got out a ladder and climbed across the corner. And our uh, state court said it's that's not that is not trespassing. And so everybody cheered, and the uh, the landowners have hired. I just read the other day uh, a big high powered law firm out of Washington D.C. And they're appealing it to the U.S. Circuit Court in favor uh, so in favor on. of the landowners or the hunters. The the hunter the hunters uh, won the original case. I, I know. Yes, and they yes. said and so. So right. the, the landowners are appealing that to the Supreme Court or whatever. Yeah, basically. Gotcha. See, I didn't know that. I, I yeah, and it was it'll go through the Circuit Court before it goes to the Supreme Court, but. Uh, Okay. Yeah, they are. They are doing it. What yeah. What do you think? Like, when you think of that, and you think of you know, it's almost like cartoon. Like when you think of these, you know, these these rich evil landowner owners sitting in a dark room. They're like, you know what? We're gonna stop these hunters from corner crossing, <laughs> and we're gonna we're gonna hire the best law firm, you know, from the East Coast or whatever. Like, why do they do that? What What is their motivation? Is it to protect I, the hunting access that they could lease out to people to add supplemental yes, income to the ranching yeah, operation? That's a part of it. Is it? Huh. Yeah, and I think just having blinders on that you know, no trespassing means no trespassing. I you said it's sort of cartoonish, and the the image that it harkens for me is that uh, in Wyoming's uh, earliest days as a territory and. And as a state, uh, the most powerful group in the state, and arguably it is to this day to some extent, was the Wyoming Stock Growers Association. Yep. And cattlemen associations, in, those but, kind of things. Yep. Yeah. The late the late eighteen hundreds, we had all sorts of land get bought up uh, by people in Europe, uh, and that that's kind of what led to the Johnson County War was conflicts between. Uh, cattlemen and these big land conglomerations and local people that were getting sh- shut off of the, you know, kept kept away from their creeks and uh, run off of their own land. And oh wow! So this whole thing to me sort of harkens to that old west. You know, I don't know if you ever if you watched the the uh, drama eighteen eighty three. I did. Yeah, with Tim McGraw. Yeah. But there, there's a scene in that where a couple of guys from the Stock Growers Association, when they're camped in Wyoming, come up and, and try to basically run them off. Mm-hmm. Yep, and they tell them, you know, we, we don't have any more right to this land than, than we do. And that's kind of still the story today. It's such a fine line with, 
you know, because I, I think about that kind of stuff, John. I, I'm a landowner. You know, I, I'm i not some giant corporate farm raising, you know, what alfalfa or, or whatever. But I, there's, I, I have this weird disconnect between what it means to be a landowner and protecting that as because I believe in land ownership. And so I don't, I don't want anybody to, yeah. to get me wrong. I, you know, um, land ownership, if you own that land, it is important that, that, uh, they, they have that, you know, right to the boundary, they created, right. Private property rights, everything. But on the other token, uh, when you, when you flip that coin w- before I owned land uh, and my wife would tell you, I used to get really, really upset about landowners landlocking us out of public land or, um, yeah. you know, putting no, I, I used to, I, I, I used to get, I'll tell you where it was worse was in North Carolina. Cause they don't have a lot, a lot of public land in North Carolina. When I was stationed out there in the Marines and, and I, I just tell my buddies, no, grab, you know, grab your deer rifle. I, we'll, we'll go out. We're, I'm going to teach you how to hunt deer and we're going to go chase these little North Carolina whitetail. And, and man, everywhere we went, there was nothing but no trespassing signs. We saw more trespass, no trespassing signs than we saw deer. And so I, I'm like one of those guys that falls in between. Uh, I had, uh, I had that Matt Ranella on my show, uh, Steve Ranella's brother, who's like, you know, Mm -hmm. he's got this almost socialistic, um, ideology about it where he's like, oh, I have tr- trespassers feel welcome on my land or, or whatever he put. I'm not like that in, by any means. But there is this almost sense I get of the people that have a problem with corner crossing. There's this sense of evil in my in my mind that comes out of that. Like, you got to be kidding me. These two corners come together. Now, I've been to the four corners where New Mexico and Arizona and Utah and Colorado come together, right? Mm-hmm. I've been I've been there and it's it's you could stand in two states at once. It's not like these are big fat lines and you're trespassing. So so when you think about this this grid system, this grid gridded private land system in in places like Wyoming and there's parts of Montana and uh, I believe there's even some in in uh, southeast Idaho, I could be wrong on that. Um and, and other western states. To to think that there's somebody that sits in a in a room somewhere and has a problem with somebody crossing over this imaginary line, I mean it's, it's the most tacky tacky. It's so bizarre. Yeah, yeah. Tacky is a great way to put it, man. Great way to put it. Yeah, and that's kind of one issue. And being fenced fenced off of private lands and water places is sort of another issue that I. You got to understand that in a lot of places in, uh, that we're talking about in Wyoming, uh, the landowners are leasing the public land. Mm-hmm. They're running their cattle on it all summer, and they're taking care of the fences. And whether it's a state road or a private road, they're they're taking care of the road, and so they feel an ownership of the public land that you can kind of understand, right? And as hunters, we know that there are bad actors that give us all bad reputations. And there are so many hunters out there now that basically every landowner has had bad experiences with hunters. And so that's what you're, that's what you're facing, you know, when you want to drive through someone's land or mm-hmm. they cut across a corner. A lot of times is 
they don't want you to go back there and litter or tear up their road or shoot or, their barn or yeah leave gates open shoot their and, barn or, yeah yeah you you went right into the question i was going to ask you which is how much of like uh, liability slash responsibility is on hunter's shoulders for some of the past bad apples that have done that uh, and, and I've I've experienced that. Like I, my my grandparents on uh, one side of the family here has you know all these alfalfa ranches in central Utah, and I remember Grandpa he he never had a problem with people hunting geese and hunting pheasants and whatnot on on his land. Uh, he didn't like them hunting deer because he wanted to hunt deer. Uh, but anyway, it the, it was it was this thing. And I I grew up and I I had all these access to the neighboring farms and ranches around there when I was a kid. Nobody cared, you know. They they everybody kind of knew each other, and I I'd go hunt deer or, or pheasants or whatever on on these neighboring uh, properties. And then one time I went, I I just gotten out of the Marines, and I didn't know anything had changed, man. I go down there and I'm I'm hunting pheasants, and I drive down to this spot that had uh, a spigot where you can fill up uh, drinkable water. Uh, down by this this old I don't know. I don't know even how to describe that. It's like a place where they would corral sheep and cattle. Uh, and also bail, you know, bring all this alfalfa back and bail it up and stack it and whatnot. Anyway, um, I go down there and I didn't know anything had changed. And I, I'm like filling up water and I get back in my truck. And all of a sudden, this other truck pulls up and this, I, I'll never forget this guy, man. He just, man, just rubbed me the wrong way, especially because I was so ornery that first year I got out of the military. You know, it was such a crazy time in my life man he pulls up and he's like this big fat son of a bitch and he rolls his window down and just looks at me and i rolled my window down i'm waiting for him to say something like you know how you doing or what are you doing here or something and and he just looks at me and kind of gives me this dirty look And, and you can imagine a marine that just came home from iraq was in no mood for some douchebag to give me a hard time, right? And and finally, I said, are you going to say something, pork chop, or do I need to get out and smack those lips right off of your face? I, I said something real obnoxious like that. And, man, his jaw about fell out of the truck. He, he just couldn't believe somebody had just talked to him like that. But uh, what, had, what had happened is that landowner had leased that property to some outfit that uh, – uh, built these cabins and, and like leased the land out to, to pheasant hunters and, and they raised pheasants and released them on there. And I was blown away. I didn't know. I didn't know they had done this. I'd been gone for five years, you know? And, and so we worked it out, ended up being kind of buddies after that. But initially I, I did, I just, I was so mad at this guy for not saying something to me. <laughs> and, um, uh, anyway, and, and, and by the way, John, that worked out great because those hunters, they'd, they'd raise that, that, that outfitter. They, they would raise all these pheasants. The hunters would chase them onto my, uh, my dad's place, and I'd just sit over there and wait for them and shoot them. So pretty nice, nice little situation. What, what, do you think, what do you think the future holds with this corner crossing thing, man? Boy, I, you know, if we assume the, the decision will be the same, uh, the higher courts, then I guess what we can hope for is the state to codify that right and then ideally uh, uh, put in accesses in some of these places. Um, 
like the like that ladder system that those guys used. Yeah, yeah. If I mean, if it's if it's going to be a, a permanent place of public access, then that's a, kind of what makes sense to me is to develop a little bit, develop it a little bit, and uh, yeah. that's really what I hope. That's really what I hope happens. Uh, I think the repercussions of them reversing that decision are probably uh, will have some un, unintended consequences. Um, there are a lot of people that have bought private land adjacent to pieces of public land because because of that adjacency, thinking that you know we're we we border public land, and now if they can't corner cross onto that public land, what happens to the the value of their property you know um but would would the opposite be true too not not to not to make an argument for these landowners but would the opposite of that be true you know hey buy this land because nobody else can access it but you so like in like our our property in idaho uh, that we, we just, we just got to a point where we're about to close on it and sell it, you know, uh, which I'm like kind of slightly butthurt over. I really love this property, but anyway, it's 26 acres and it butts up to, uh, what is, what is called a Vista land. A Vista is a large, uh, energy company up here. It's like the, the power, when you pay your power bill, you're paying it to a Vista, right? Uh, okay. so a Vista built these dams on the Clark Fork river and as part of the their ability to have these dams to generate electricity uh, electricity on the Clark Fork River, um, they have to own certain amounts of publicly accessible land against the river. And my property butted up against like 300 acres of a Vista land. So it was cool because I owned 26 yeah. acres, but man, I, I had access to all this acreage right behind me. And I killed a giant mule deer last, or not mule deer, uh, whitetail last year on it. Uh, I mean, not giant, but he, he was, he was a good, my biggest whitetail. And, uh, I was wearing snowshoes and sauced him with my bow. It was the coolest <laughs> story ever. I felt like a real, uh, you know, mountain man or something. But anyway, um, that was one of the things that I, as we advertised it when we were selling it was, Hey, you have, because of the way the highway goes and, you know, how our property lines up, you have all this access and it's almost exclusive to you uh, if you own this land. And, and it was now by law. And, and what was, what was nice is, is anybody could pull up on the highway and just park and all they'd have to do is kind of walk through this little gate or whatever. Uh, and they can hike, you know, it's about a mile, two miles around to the backside of that property and, and they can access it. And by law that that was total legal totally totally legal now the one little secret that i i'm hesitant to even share with people is for for me who is one of the i, I am a wildly fanatical public land advocate and i've i've argued with many politicians on this show uh about public land and public land access and, and i'm a huge believer in it but even me I would get slightly annoyed if somebody actually made the effort to park on the highway and hike into what I considered my exclusive access to this Avista land. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm just being yeah. honest, you know, it was, it was annoying. And, and, uh, 
uh, even though legally they were they were fully within their right. And so I guess I, that was a long way of asking what you were just saying. Would would the opposite effect be uh, true if they could claim, like, let's say the court, the the circuit courts say? Yeah, no, uh, people cannot publicly access this land. This corner crossing is trespassing, and uh, yeah. now they could say, yeah. oh, you have exclusive access. All the public land. Um, boy, what a, what a horrible outcome that would be. It would be. Um, because it would. It would essentially make that all private land, all of these, all of these. And we have a lot of that now. We have so much landlocked land in this checkerboard grid of public land that is Wyoming. Yeah, and it's not just Wyoming, John. It's I, I mean, we have all, all this of, land all across the west, all across the west yeah. where it's just strategically owned, privately privately owned land that blocks out millions upon millions of acres of public acts or public land that should be accessible. And, and I don't know how. I don't know what the solution is to that. Well, I think the solution is for us to keep uh, supporting our local conservation organizations, you know, um, and just pushing for more and more access through the game and fish. And if we can fund the, if we can fund projects to provide access, I think they'll do it for us in most cases. Um, there have been some uh, good and some bad land swaps in Wyoming in the last few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, to try to kind of try to address that, to give to open up some public access, and um, unfortunately, in the hunting world, I think a lot of things come down to how you choose to to spend your money, where you choose to spend your money, you know. And yeah, I, it's it's. I think it's a fight worth fighting, though, for sure. I think so too. Spend your money on public access and John Law's marinara sauce. And you'll be in good shape, right? No, yeah. you know, going back to what you just said there, John, are, are you okay on time, man? Am I keeping you? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. I'm good. Uh, th- going back to what you just said, you know, supporting some of these conservation uh, organizations and, and getting involved with some of those. Um, the, the access, what, no, let me, let me back up. What is your thought? What are your thoughts on some of these private, entities that are coming in as sometimes they're forming as like nonprofits. Sometimes they're forming as like um, uh, a for-profit for the sole purpose of buying privately owned land and making it publicly accessible, whether it's through like membership programs, like, like let's say, let's say there's this organization that uh, you've got like this landlocked area where maybe in the middle of all this, this landlocked area, is is like i don't know a, a few thousand acres of of really good elk habitat and the elk there there's a there's a herd up there and and it's a sizable herd and uh one of the access points uh of privately owned land maybe came up for sale for a million bucks and let's say that's you know i don't know a thousand acre ranch or, or a, a 200 acre ranch whatever i'm just again i'm spitballing here and a privately held company uh, came in or or a, a not for profit a, a not for profit geez man i'm sorry i'm stuttering here 
you're kind of talking about like uh, some of the some of the things like the Nature Conservancy has done. Yeah, yeah, and where they where they buy this land with the sole purpose of giving people access to that landlocked land or just access to that private land. But but a lot like some of them are going to be like, okay, we bought this thousand acres, and for a um, hundred dollars a year, you can access this private land. Or or maybe it's just a, there was another one I was talking to a guy down in Texas where he's he's like, now we're just going to buy the land and and uh, it's just going we're just going to make it publicly accessible, and there is no what we need people to pay. You know, we need everybody that believes in this kind of program to pay like three bucks a month or something. And if we get enough of those people paying that much money, uh, they've got plenty of money to buy all these public or private lands and turn them into public. What what are your thoughts? It seems like a step in the right direction to me. I mean, I think any increased public access is probably good. And if that whether that's through the form of charging a trespass fee to go through some of these private lands or. yeah, you know, any any time it's not it's not truly public, and so the the future is uncertain with any program like that. Uh, but I it see that seems like a step in the right direction to me. I, yeah, what, what say you about that? I think it could be dangerous, but for the most part, I think it is the step in the right direction. I think that it is. If there if there is one thing that as Western big game hunters. That we know, because I say it in that sense, because if you look at the the East Coast, um, you know, like I told you, I, I lived in North Carolina, um, uh, private land everywhere. I mean, there, there's hardly any public land. You look at the Midwest, it's, it's mostly privately held land. But out here in the West, we have these massive publicly accessible wilderness and and forest service lands and blm lands and and accessible lands where we can go out and and the thing that i like about it is we are the stakeholders in this land so we care if it's actually good habitat for elk because that's why we're accessing it we're not PETA. this isn't PETA that has no real stakeholder uh stake in the game sorry to repeat that word but it, we hunters are tangible, real stakeholders in something that they value deeply. No other group has that when it comes to public land. And so it, it, it seems to me that it would make a lot of sense if hunters could, for the love of God, once in their life, come together on one issue and unite and go after something, it would be access to these lands where the yeah. game that we are passionate about pursuing live. That's my take on it. The, I, I, I don't, yeah, I, I don't know anything else to add to that. What, what do you think? I think, I think that's a great thought. I, I'm trying to think of if there is a nonprofit out there that is, has that as their mission, you know, it seems like there should be. Well, there, there's been a couple, there's been a couple that have started. It's very, very difficult what I'm finding. In fact, I was going to be a board member of one. Uh, and, and the guy just was not setting this thing up, right. It wasn't getting organized appropriately. You got to be really careful because what, what happens in, you know, the nature of taking donated money, from the general public and trying to put it towards a public good, 
uh, is very emotional and it's, it's very, it's a very touchy subject, you know? And so it's like, you know, I subscribe to Netflix, for example, what does that cost? Five or 10 bucks a month or something like that. Hey, no big deal. Yeah. Whatever. They take one of my favorite shows off of there. I'm pissed for 10 minutes and then I move on with my life. But by golly, $3 a month and you live in Idaho and and this organization takes your $3 a month and invests in public access in Wyoming, that's not beneficial to this Idaho guy. And now these people are in an uproar. And so I, I think that it, there it has to be some... The, the, a, the hunters that would get involved in something like that would have to be extremely patient and understanding with how that is that money is managed, uh, not from a sense of, of you know, what dollars are, are being used for what, but in a sense of this might not benefit you in the next two or three years, but it might in five or ten years. You know, and so that's that's where you have to, you know, I, I think use caution and, and there has to be uh, perfect clarity uh, from a sense of, you know, if you're asking somebody to pay $3 a month to help public access, uh, there there just has to be pub- uh, perfect clarity as, as to how things progress and what lands are accessible now and, and maybe give the people that are donating that money uh, the, the first right of refusal to access that land over people that don't, if that makes sense. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Again, I... I have a lot of opinions without a lot of data to back it up, brother. <laughs> so, well, um, man, I've kept you a long time, man. I uh, really enjoyed this conversation. We might have to do this again, man. Well, yeah, I've had fun. I I took a handful of notes about all the things I thought we would talk about, and we didn't really get to any of them. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, we, we talked about hunting etiquette. We talked about ethics. Yeah, uh, or, or we were supposed to, and uh, all we did was talk about this corner crossing thing for for uh, what we what we you know. And it, do you have anything you'd like to add in terms of the hunting etiquette side of things? Because I, I like to talk about that while it's actively hunting season. And, and what's today, October twenty third? While we're talking twenty third, yeah. so it's the twenty third. Um, you know, there's uh, all hunting seasons for the most part are out. I, 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 me and my girls were out last night looking for elk and deer and bear and everything else. Um, it's all open right now. Um, there's been a lot of etiquette issues that have popped up. So I'm curious if you had something etiquette wise and, and, and I think a lot of people get confused just so we're, we're clear here. There's a difference between hunting ethics and hunting etiquette. And and what I'm referring to is etiquette, how we treat other hunters on the mountain, how you know how we respond to other hunters on the mountain, that kind of thing. Um, what what do you see out there, John, etiquette wise? Uh, because I I don't want to tell you we were going to talk about one thing and then we totally went off the rails and talked about homesteading. Oh, no. <laughs> so, well, no, that, I think that's the one that got us off from the marinara discussion. Yeah, no, and so. I love that stuff, and that's usually how my show goes, man. <laughs> I, I make all these big, uh, you know, grand plans to have a certain discussion but let's talk about hunting etiquette if you if you have another 10 minutes or so you know what i would say is is be friendly out there you know um stop and when you're at the when you're at the trailhead or the parking lot uh talk to the guys that are there and find out what they're doing so you don't step on their feet um can we go into detail with that Can, can we can we talk about that exact thing right there because when you say talk to somebody about what their plans are, 
like I'll give you an example. When if if I meet up with, I, I usually go to um, when I'm going hunting, I'll, I'll have plan A through like D, E, F, or G, right? And if I get to plan A and there's a truck there and the people are there, I will get out and I'll ask, hey, are you guys going this way or are you going that way? And the reason I'm asking is because I don't want to step on your toes. And that usually, yeah, exactly. That, that's exactly what I'm saying. Okay, that's what you're saying. And, and, and a little secret with that, guys, for everybody listening, I've met a lot of good friends by doing that. Uh, so anyway, I, I didn't mean to cut well, you off I, with that, Joey. You get, by do, by taking the time to be friendly in the parking lot, you get all sorts of great information too, right? The people Absolutely. That are there for a week and are just coming out successful or unsuccessful. Um, but yeah, mainly just to make sure that you're not following someone, someone's tracks right up the mountain. Um, or if they're looping one way, you're not going to loop directly into the other direction. Um Wyoming is vast enough. I try to avoid the people. You know, if I if I see a truck somewhere, I a lot of times just go somewhere, go somewhere else. Man, um, that is actually I I, it, I don't want to glaze right over what you just said there. There is a lot to be said about just moving on, and this is why you don't go into the field with only a plan A. You have yeah. B, C, D, E, F. Um. Moving on from when there is a truck parked there already, they beat you to it, early bird gets a worm, whatever. It can be irritating, right? I mean, let's, let's yeah, not deny it. It can be irritating. If that's, a, if that's a honey hole, you know? Yeah, yeah. You get but used to a spot year after year, and you come back one year, and someone's on it. And yeah. You think, that, that's my spot. And, and the thing is, is it's way less irritating if you have a plan B, C, D, and E, and F, and whatever. Yeah. I can't even say the alphabet. So, um, yeah, I, I I like that concept, man. If if I'm like you, if there if there's a truck, I'm moving on. Do you when you're going hunting? Do you target actual like you know how they they have these trailhead areas where there's parking lots and Sometimes there's even like a portage on or something right there, and then everybody's kind of walking in the same trail. I never hunt those. What do you no. hunt those? No, I try not to. I like, um, I like to find like random ass spots where nobody thinks about walking in. What What do you do? What What are you targeting? Well, it, you know, I I bird hunt a lot, and so it's wide open out there, and I I look for new places. I like to take big drives, Jim. As one of my favorite pastimes is to just spend a day on dirt roads, uh, finding new spots. Oh, we and... get along, man. <laughs> I love it. So just, so, yeah. I'm sorry. What what was your question? Oh, I, I, I said we'd get along because I like the long drives oh, too. So, right. yeah, go ahead. That's, I... I lost my, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. No, that, that's just, okay. So we were talking about, uh, you know, you like to go on long drives to find new areas and versus versus like hitting those trailhead kind of areas where there's four trucks parked, two of them have horse trailers, uh, and, and maybe one has an ATV trailer or something, so you know people are up there. I, yeah, I never yeah. hunt those. I never, never go there, ever. I think it's crazy. No, and I see we've got what we call the loop road uh, kind of on our local mountain here. 
and it turns into a city when when general general elk opens and i really i wonder do these people know each other or are they just <laughs> I, are they know. forming neighborhoods up there, up like, there and, really? <laughs> but no i try to avoid the people uh and when i do run into people like i said i just uh, chat them up and see what they're doing and man i'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you a funny little story. I there's this area I hunt in Idaho for elk season, and I I had been hunting this uh, same kind of you know general drainage um, or or I guess series of drainages. You know, no, I don't know, John. Have you ever been to North Idaho? Uh, yeah, just kind of passing through, but yeah. Okay, I've so been you- on the Montana side more, but. So you've seen like the way that these canopied forests are. The, I mean, it's like a damn jungle up here. Um, mm-hmm. And and so, anyways, the, these spots that you find, um, you can you can stare at your Onyx or your Spartan Forge or whatever all day long, right? But it all looks the same in North Idaho, and so you have to get boots on the ground to really determine what what is in that area and and what like where are the elk feeding where are the meadows at where are the where are the north face benches all this stuff anyway i had mm-hmm. found i had found one of these areas and i'd had some success up there uh, in terms of elk elk action uh, elk encounters whatever um a couple of years go by and i go up there and right where, so what this was, was there's this dirt road that goes up the mountain and then there's like, it like forked off to the left and would go down to, I don't, I don't want to call it a trailhead because it's not really a trailhead. It's just, it, it, this dirt road would go down to kind of this meadow area on the river. And it, I think it was put in there for fly fishing access because uh, one of the tributaries to the main river uh, kind of fed through there, and I, I've hiked up that and fished it. it. Great fishing, and I think that's why this area was down there. But anyway, I'd go park back there, and I'd hike up there from there. One year, I show up, and there's like this city of wall tents all over this place, uh, it, it, kind of where the the parking area was that had never been there before. I, I you know, you're talking about a unit where if you find an area, you you, you know, this was back in the day when it, it was not overrun. Uh, during archery season, you'd be the only one on the mountain. So I go over there, and uh, it's all these these Mennonite, uh, you, you know these the the Mennonites. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So these Mennonites are over there, and they're camped. And and Mennonites, I don't know how to for for people that are listening that don't know what Mennonites are. Uh, it, it's it's I I am not going to define who they are because I I don't really know, but they're they're this religion, and it's like similar to Amish, but they'll live more modern um anyway i i don't know how to they're they're actually really good people <laughs> i've i've had a lot of really good interactions with them but uh i was livid man i was livid that these people there there was like seven wall tents there was a couple of fifth wheels uh this giant camp and they had to be making a bunch of noise and uh, so, uh, like a week goes by, and I go check, and they're still camped there. And so I'm like, okay, well, this sucks. So uh, I go elsewhere, and then a week goes by, and I go check again. They're still camped there, man. They were there all September. Finally, I'm, I'm walking down way up above from where they camped. I I had made this plan to kind of go over the mountain instead of going from down low, and I'm walking down. 
the mountain and I hit the dirt road and I have like two miles once I hit the dirt road back to my truck. I, I'd kind of come out on the wrong end, made a mistake, had this long ass hike. And so I'm I'm walking down the dirt road. It's like 10 o'clock at night. This pickup truck comes rolling down the road and they offered me a ride. And I'm like, you know what? Uh, I'm exhausted. Yeah, I'll jump. I'll jump in the back seat if you guys are good with it. I, I'm just parked down here about two miles or whatever. Turns out, John, it was one of the dudes parked at this Mennonite camp. And uh, they ended up being some of the coolest dudes I've ever met. And they're telling me these wild stories about, oh, man, so-and-so shot a spike over here yesterday. And five days ago, so-and-so got a five-point up here. These guys were super fired up and passionate about elk hunting. And I'm, like, cruising down the road. We're having just this great conversation. They get me to my truck. Uh, Ever since then, they've camped in the same exact spot. And it's the same big-ass group. And I always have a great conversation with them. I go, I go over there, and and they've given me breakfast. They've, you know, uh, cool. offered me coffee, and and you know now we know each other, and 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 we have like this relationship. And I've given them rides. I've I've seen them come off the mountain, and I'll be driving up the road, and be like, come on, guys, jump in, and uh, I'll take them back to camp or whatever. So it, it's just, I I I think the the lesson with this is. I was I was like fighting mad when I first saw this camp, but I ended up becoming really good friends with these folks, and I actually got a lot of good intel about what the elk were doing with them, yeah. and uh, it's worked it's worked out wonders for me. And so, well, that just the respect, you know. What were you going to say there? We're we're all out doing the same thing, the, the same kinds of things, you know. And so, yeah, it's when you talk to people and realize that it, you you become more accepting of it being their public land too. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. I love that idea because we are we are. I I know that you know. There's uh, the flat brimmed hat gang out there that you know that likes to wear the I'm a public landowner tee or whatever. But the idea is we all we all are public landowners and and we all are out there on the same side. It's not like you're out there competing for uh hunting ground with PETA that want to take away your lifestyle. You know what I mean? And yeah. so there there does need to be where I can make a joke about my fellow hunters for wearing flat brimmed hats, I still love them, right? right. And and I still I still want to be their friend and I want to share this land and and this lifestyle and this passion. Uh, so that our future generations have something to hold on to. It's important stuff, man. It really is. And I, I'll i add that uh, in a world that seems ever more divided, it's, it's nice to look at the hunting community as a whole and realize that it's not partisan and that we have our disagreements, but that we all, at the, the end of the day, still share a love for the land and the animals, you yeah. know? Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Well, John, uh, this has been a great conversation, man. Like, like I told you earlier, um, I I think people are going to get a lot. I love getting people that I don't know on the show and getting perspectives that are not like widely known. Everybody, you know, everybody knows where people like Steve Ranella stands, right? We, and, and, and I like the guy too, but everybody knows where all these big names stand and and they we've all heard their opinions it's people like you that have this this experience growing up and hunting in Wyoming their whole life 
that I, that I love to get on to gain perspectives that we wouldn't get elsewhere. And I, I think this, yeah. is, this is what's going to move the needle down the road, man. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, I, I guess that's a long way of me telling you, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. I know I kind of hit you up out of the blue and was like, Hey man, want to come on my pod? Hey, was this your first podcast by the way? Yeah. Yeah. This is the first time I've, I've gotten to sit down and kind of talk about what I'm all about. And, uh, yeah, man. Now you're a pro. It's, it's been cool. <laughs> I, I, I've had fun, man. I, if if you ever want to want to talk again, I'm here for it. And I yeah. tell you what, catching up on your podcast, I've I thought, well, I would have liked to have been in the in the studio with those guys. And if you ever feel like uh, doing some sort of a panel or having more than one guest on, and and want somebody that can sort of offer an alternative perspective, uh, I'm down for it. Yeah, I, well, that's good to know, man, because we do do the hunting panels all winter long. This is the the winter time is where we yeah. address some of the major hunting issues uh, that we face as as uh, as we look into the future of hunting. Um, and so we we spend a lot of time that time of year for um, you know those hunt. I, I love doing the hunt panels. There's a trick to those though. Uh, you gotta, you gotta keep them limited. I've been on some podcasts where the hunt panel, there's like six people and nobody actually gets to chime in. Um, I, I found if, if I get two or three people on the show for these hunt panels, we can really hash out some real solutions, um, that people will benefit from. So, uh, I'd love to get you back on for one. I, I actually have one in mind. We'll, we'll talk about it after, uh, uh, after this, this hunting season's over. Yeah, that would be, that would be great. I uh, I really like that. Good deal. Well, tell everybody where they can find you on social media and stuff. Sure thing, Jim. Um, that is the last Wyomingite, and that's all one word. But if you type it out separately, I think it'll come up. Um, I'm pretty easy to find online. Uh, my main thing is is of course the Instagram is where I sort of keep a, a daily photo journal of what I'm up to. And I think on that note, if I could take a second, Jim, and just thank everybody that has supported that page, uh, friends and family and people around the state. Uh, I've got a really cool audience on there, and maybe it doesn't come through with the posts, but it leads to a lot of good discussion, too. And I, I've got a lot of non-hunters that follow me on social media, and I think they're, they're learning a lot. And I've got a lot of, uh, you know, sort of died in the wool uh, local hunters that uh, maybe don't appreciate the non-hunting perspective that I hope are, are learning something, too, as they go along. So I, I just want to thank everybody that's given me that follow or has ever liked a post or scrolled a post. Um, I, I'm really having a good time with it. And, I, again, I really appreciate having the chance to sit down and talk with you tonight. Heck yeah, man! Uh, the what I like about your page with with what you're talking about the the non hunters that are following you on there is John. Sincerely, you're you're a good representation of what hunters are today and and why we're passionate about what we do what we do. And I that that actually that makes my heart pretty happy, man. That that you have a lot of non hunters on there because uh, we we need more people out there like you that are representing hunting with uh, that, that do it in this way where you're showing people that are non hunters, that hunters are very, 
respectful and appreciative of our life and and our our wildlife and and we have this profound respect for our wildlife and yet we still hunt and and that is like the the great conundrum that non-hunters sometimes don't understand and so i'm glad you're out there representing that and and helping shed some light for those non-hunters because those non-hunters are are the people that we really need to focus on if we expect to have a future as hunters so I appreciate you doing that. Stick on the line for uh, after after we end this. But um, I appreciate you joining me on the show, man. This is a great conversation. I'm definitely going to keep in touch with you, and uh, we're we're going to get you back on in the future for sure. Great. Well, thanks again, Jim. You made it. That's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure you're following us on Instagram at the Western Huntsman. And write us a good review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on the mountain.